Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Would you go ahead and stand with me? Turn to page. Or don't. Nobody has to stand if you don't want to, I guess. You can just totally ignore me. I'm not even here. Don't even worry about it. You do what you do. I'll do what I do. It's fine. Stand with me if you would. Page 487. We all know this song. I'm going to back up from the mic. All right. And we'll sing it together. Page 487. Amazing grace. Announcements just reiterating from this morning. Remember, we have a regular week this week Tuesday night, basketball, Wednesday, youth, Wednesday night Bible study, women's Bible study tomorrow, grief share Tuesday at one. Also, um, you can check there in your bulletin Thursday, volleyball, mops this week on Thursday at six o'clock. Uh, today's, by the way, today's the last day to sign up for Ladies Craft Night, which is March the 22nd. That's this Friday. At 6.30 in the gym, $10 covers the cost of all materials. Bring flowers of your choice, one to two stems. I do not know what that means, but I suppose if you're going to go, you know what that means. So <laughs> anybody's birthday this past week? Any birthdays? All right. Any? It's not Sophia's birthday, buddy. That's July. <laughs> Any anniversaries this week? All right, all right. Let's have the ushers come and we'll take our offering.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have given to us tonight. And Father, we praise you for the opportunity to give, Lord, for your name, for the spread of your fame around our community, around our world. We give you thanks for how you provide for us the means by which this can take place. God, we praise you for the service that you've gathered us here. Lord, may you be glorified and exalted in every way. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles tonight to the fourth chapter of Hosea. Hosea chapter 4. And it's an old illustration, I guess, or example, but it, it, it holds true. Um, there's a big difference between simply knowing about someone and knowing them personally, isn't there? You know, I, I, can, um, I can tell you a lot about some of my favorite preachers or authors, for example. I can tell you a lot about Urban Meyer and the Ohio State Buckeyes, if any of you are interested in any of that information. <laughs> I don't know any of them personally. Right? I don't know any of my favorite authors, favorite preachers, favorite singers. I, I suppose I know one, but um, I don't know any of the athletes I like personally. But in, in cases like that, that doesn't make any difference, right? It, it would only matter if I needed to know somebody personally, and in these cases I don't. Right, Knowledge about someone is perfectly sufficient when no relationship is necessary. Right, If there's no relationship necessary, then it doesn't matter what level I know somebody personally, which is why it is completely insufficient to simply have knowledge about God. Because a relationship is the only means through which God will accept us. God has authored all the terms by which he and human beings can be reconciled, and there is no provision for mere association. There's no provision for that. There's no, um, you know, side way to be close to God or have him accept us. God must fully know, and God must be fully known in order for there to be reconciliation between us. Israel forgot these terms and lost everything in chapters 4 and 5 tonight. The Lord presented a legal case against Israel to prove her adultery, and he pronounced his coming verdict of, or his verdict of coming judgment because she had ceased to know him. The terms by which we come into a relationship with God tonight, today, have been ratified once and for all by the blood of Jesus Christ for us. That blood was not shed to be forgotten, marginalized, looked over, or assumed. The blood of Jesus Christ was not shed so that what it bought could be filled in by religious formality or ceremony or man-made traditions. It was provided to secure what nothing else could. It was provided to secure what even the law could not secure and was never meant to. It was shed to secure what God calls from His end a marriage. God intends to be known personally by those he saves. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, I ask tonight that as we open your word together that you would be with us. Father, please be with me. Help me uh, 
to speak clearly. Father, help me to explain this text correctly. Lord, may we bring from it what you've breathed into it. For the sake of our hope and our joy tonight, God, I ask you these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read chapter 4, just the first verse to you. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So the case pleaded against Israel in chapter 2, specifically 2-2, she is not my wife and I am not her husband, is now brought into court, so to speak, in chapter 4, verse 1. The word plead in 2-2 is in Hebrew related to the word controversy in 4-1. God states his case formally now in chapter 4, verses 1-19. through 19. It's interesting, from here on out, nothing more is heard of Hosea and Gomer. It is now strictly God and Israel, and also Judah, it will pick up Judah, through the mouth of the prophet Hosea. So the first verse pronounces a broken marriage here. Marriage is a legal contract that requires both parties to be faithful, but it's more than that, isn't it? That that isn't what holds a marriage together, the legal part of it. Steadfast love is a commitment on the part of the person to the spirit of the marriage relationship as well as the letter of the marriage vows. And God pronounces that Israel has been faithful to neither of those things. She didn't keep her covenant obligations and she didn't love Yahweh, which is interesting that, that love is required. We, we think that if love is required, it can't be genuine. God doesn't think that. That's a, that's a man-made assumption. Hear the word of the Lord is not only Hosea calling Israel to listen, but to literally hear, to heed what God has previously spoken, to remember the terms. That, that's, uh, that's his call here in a moment from verse 2. God has a three-part accusation against his people here. You can see that in the verse. There is um, no faithfulness. So Israel has not been true to their word, to their responsibilities. There is no steadfast love, which is marital love specifically. Affection, commitment, that's gone. And... There is no acknowledgement of God in the land. And that's more than mere cognition of God, just recognizing that he's there. Remember all throughout Hosea, the description of the word no in chapter 3, verse 20, is the fulfillment of what marital intimacy points to as a whole in the Bible. So whenever we start to see knowledge or acknowledge or anything like that, we need to remember in context, intimacy. Knowledge of God in Hosea is specifically intimate. He's saying here there was nothing even close to that in Israel. So all three of these descriptions of Israel's sin are in relational terms. What you hear in this section is almost a distraught husband in court stating his complaint. She's not faithful to me. She doesn't love me. And she doesn't even know or understand me. God presents himself in that way. He's been spurned by his bride. Verse 1 describes a broken marriage. Verse 2 describes a broken family. Look at verse 2. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Now, if we're looking there, all of those crimes and violations or crimes are violations of what? The Ten Commandments. Right down through the list here. The words of the covenant God made with Israel. What have they, They've forgotten the terms. 
They've forgotten the covenant terms. They've not listened. And notice that. Where God's people are not committed to the spirit of their covenant with Him, they will soon stop keeping the letter of the covenant with Him. The breaking of the covenant with God by Adam in the garden in Genesis 3 results in murder by the time you just get to Genesis 4. Israel's failure in verse 1 results in their social breakdown in verse 2. So the breaking of the marriage has broken the family, the people, the children, and so the land is broken. Let's read further in verse 3. Therefore, because of what we've read, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. (coughs) Excuse me. Israel took possession of this land under the terms of the covenant. Remember that. And central to the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience to this covenant was exile from the land. That was the, the, the chief thing that would happen if they broke this covenant. Deuteronomy 28, 22 to 24, Leviticus 26, 19. So the people have broken their tenant agreement, if you will, with the land. We see in the land twice in verse 1. God has that phrase twice there because they're living in it was a sign of their covenant, the one they had broken. So in verse 3, judgment on them will even affect the land. Notice that the land is personified in this verse. The land is in mourning. The land languishes. And beloved, this is an all too familiar pattern on the part of humanity. Right? Like Adam, Israel was given a beautiful land to care for, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they blew it. So we're meant to see that in the Bible. Israel's fall is a repetition of the fall, isn't it? That's what's happening. Everything meant for the good of the Son God made and put in this place is cursed because of His disobedience. The Bible is telling us all from through the pages of the Bible that a better Son is needed. That That's being whispered to us all the time because this is what humans do with the blessing of God. Even now, our rule over creation, even today, as humanity can be so corrupt that even nature itself suffers for it. Generally speaking, we are not good stewards. And I don't say that because I'm making some type of environmentalist argument of some kind. It's, it's, it's a biblical reality. It's a biblical description of the fact that our rebellion has truly damaged everything. Right? The word the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament uses to say the land is mourning in Hosea 4.3 is the same word Paul uses in Romans 8, 20-22, to say that the creation is groaning. The same word under our rule right now. So the rule of humanity today is actually a threat to the creation because of our sinfulness. And the three, notice how complete this is. The three categories of creature from Genesis 1 are highlighted here. That's no accident in Hosea 4.3. Beasts, birds, and fish. And notice what it says. Even the fish of the sea are taken away. That, that word, you see that word? Even the fish are affected by what is about to happen and the judgment that comes on Israel for their sin, which implies that what is coming will be worse than the flood. Right? Remember, fish tend to survive a flood. It's just more of the same for fish. But the coming judgment will affect even the fish. So a broken marriage leads to a broken family and then a broken home. We know, we already know because of chapter 3 that the words of this judgment are not without hope, but not for this nation, not for this group. 
God has already proclaimed that he will restore the home, he will restore the land, the earth, in 2.16 through 23. The immediate point here, however, is not that total redemption of things that is to come, but the judgment that is to come on this nation, on Israel as it was at this time. Now, there are specific reasons revealed now for Israel's adultery. We're going to get some insight into exactly what was going on that made them cheat on God, and it starts with the priests. It starts with those who were meant, in a way, to mediate for the people. We don't want to miss that. The ability on our end to keep the terms of the relationship depend foundationally on the quality of the mediator. Look at verses 4 through 9. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people, and they are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. So God is picking up that three-part accusation of no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no acknowledgement of Him. And this chapter focuses almost specifically on the lack of knowledge. Right? And again, it wasn't just a lack of information. That was not the problem. Knowing God is a relational thing, not an informational thing. By saying the people are destroyed in verse 6 for lack of knowledge, he means they don't have a relationship with God and it is going to destroy them. And it seems like God puts that primarily in the lap of the priests in Israel. The word for contention in verse 4 is the same word as controversy in verse 1. So you can imagine the priests hearing Hosea, probably nodding their heads as they hear verses 1 through 3, and then God pronounces here they're no different than the people. There are three accusations and three pronouncements of judgment in Hosea 4. Verses 1 and 2 are an accusation against the inhabitants of the land. Verse 3 is a declaration of judgment against the land. Verse 4 is an accusation against the priests. Verses 5 through 9 are a declaration of judgment against the priests. Verses 10 through 18 are an accusation against the people. And verse 19 is a declaration of judgment against the people. Hosea is saying specifically to the priests, don't accuse other people for any of this. You're no different from them. That Again, that's how Jesus spoke to the self-righteous religious leaders of his day. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, that's the context of take the log out of your own eye right before you try to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The priests of Hosea's day should have taught the people the knowledge of God, encouraged the people to know him. They should have been able to see the necessity of their own ministry, right, of its sacrifices, that God had provided a means of forgiveness for sinners, which is what they were. They should have pressed home His grace in their deliverance from Egypt. They should have kept reminding the people of this and saw their ongoing need for a sufficient sacrifice that they should know by now if God would provide if He had provided this temporary system. But they didn't do that. They didn't focus on God's grace. The priests forgot the terms, which means the people lost the knowledge of God. 
that if, if you move from grace, there is no relationship. None. Sufficient knowledge of God will never come through rituals. It would only come through the constant reminder to look to the God that was gracious enough to provide for the people. Instead, they've rejected the knowledge of God by not focusing on His gracious provision, which means they ended up rejecting the whole relationship altogether because what else could be its foundation? What else could be the foundation of a relationship with God but grace? And so God will reject them in 4.6. And the children, the people, again, will suffer as the result of the mothers, the nation's behavior, which merits divorce. So because the priests and the prophets here have failed to teach the knowledge of God, Mother Israel, so to speak, will be judged. And there's double judgment here. I will judge the priests, I will reject the priests, and I will forget the children. God should have been their pride and joy. We'll see that in 5.5. Their source of status and reputation, but God withdraws and will change their glory in verse 7 into shame. They and we, as the Bible plays out, Exchange the glory of God for that which does not profit. So God gives them, gives us, humanity in Romans 1, over to what we think will but cannot profit. Verse 8 is almost like a pun. He's saying they feed on the sins of my people. Priests got a portion of sacrifices to eat. He said they get full off of the sacrifices, so the people sin so much, or the priests make them think they are sinning so much that more sacrifices mean more portions for the priests. They love it. They love it that the people keep sinning. They eat good when the people keep sinning. And leaders who trade in an increasing knowledge of God to rest on heritage and tradition and profit killed God's people. They still do. Do you see what they were doing there? The, the, the rituals didn't stop. The sacrifices didn't stop. They kept obeying the law in that way. They kept doing the ceremonies. They kept doing the rituals. They kept going through the motions. It not, it, it's not just a cliche. Right? That, that can really happen. But their attitude is completely off base. They traded in the point of all that and just assumed that because we're doing it, everything's fine. I mean, we're doing what we're asked to do. And so, like people, like priests in verse 9, they colluded in a lack of knowledge about God. The priests didn't increase in the knowledge of God themselves, and then they didn't pour it out on the people. The people let the priests get away with not increasing the knowledge of God among them. Everyone was doing whatever let them keep doing what they wanted to. And it just exploded. In our heart of hearts today... Often we still want teachers that will scratch the itches we identify as necessary. We're happy to help keep any system going that lets us keep power or reputation or profit or influence, regardless of whether or not it's glorifying to God. We stop caring about that. In the name of keeping up traditions and doing the rituals, we'll do that till we're blue in the face. And it becomes irrelevant whether or not it's honoring to God. We like it. Right? And if, if you, if you press tradition, if you press it into the corner, it will eventually yield and say, yeah, it's just what we like to do. That's our basis for it. Right? Do you, do you notice it's impossible to do that and worship God properly? We don't make the terms. 
We don't create the terms. They were desperately sick. So are we often. And it's the worship of God that is the victim here. It's the knowledge of God that is forgotten. That's what hurts people. We have to see this. The ceremonial worship and and rituals of Yahweh worship in Israel had not gone away. That was not the case. They were still doing the things they were supposed to be doing. This is always our tendency. We put a premium on tradition at the expense of deeper knowledge of God. And and that that becomes a substitute for what is actually supposed to be happening. right? And it's, it's almost far away in our minds when it is God who will say, the trampling of my courts makes me sick. Right? You, you can be doing all the motions and it can be making God sick. These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That was said in Isaiah's time. It would be said in Jesus' time. I doubt very seriously now it doesn't apply. Right? It, it's, it's, God is not, God is not a, a tribal deity that needs gifts. Right? He, he doesn't care. If we go through the motions. In fact, the, the more we're stuck in our traditions, the more likely it is that we'll forget who he is. That's what is happening in Hosea. Look at verses 10 through 19. This is very interesting here. He said, well, isn't, maybe he means as the priest, maybe he just means Israel. Exactly. Notice that it's very hard to distinguish here. That's deliberate. Verse 10, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish. See, that's the word God uses here. To cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. Beloved, when you read things like that, when you realize, oh, God actually weighs the depth of commitment. That, that's not, when you read that, cherish. That's, they, they, instead of cherishing me, they were cherishing these things. When you read that, it is not a call to buckle down and get more committed. I have to cherish God. You can't. Not on the level He deserves. That's what we have to see. When we see that's what God requires, we're not meant to say, alright, let me try. No. We're meant to say, I'm undone. Okay? I'm undone. Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives them oracles. Could you imagine? For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. God will not relent on that term. He will not do it. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. They'll destroy themselves, is what he's saying. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty, the southern kingdom. And he speaks to them, Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So, 
The section started out with Hosea's accusation against the priests, but since like people like priests, in other words, since there's not much difference between the people and the priests, it's hard to tell what applies specifically to the priests and what applies specifically to the people, and that's the point. A new and better priest is needed to clean up this mess. People will become like their priests. So just just l- let me say this, okay? We have to let the idea that I am like God's special man or that the preacher, like it has to die. I, I'm not trying to be offensive to you. Beloved, you need better than the pastor. You need better. Pastors are not God's replacement for these priests. Jesus is God's replacement for these priests. That's all I mean. I don't mean to offend you. I don't mean to offend you when I say that. You just... Jesus is God's man for Moundsville Baptist Church. I promise. That's what's described in verse 14 through 19. That people will become like their priests. That the, the people commit immorality, literally and metaphorically. You see that throughout the text. It kind of goes back and forth. Ephraim was the biggest and most important tribe in the northern kingdom. So Ephraim was often used to refer to Israel as a whole. We talked about that when we first started. The whole nation is joined in verse 17. That's a covenantal term. Joined to Baal worship. So there's figurative adultery there. But notice that involved Israel's literal adultery since the fertility cult of Baal involved ritual prostitution and much more profane than that. And Hosea tells Judah in essence in verse 15, if you go to Israel, don't go to the temple. God is not there. Right? It's Beth-Avon now. It's the house of wickedness. It's not Beth-El. It's not the house of God anymore. When you walk back through verses 12 to 14, you find out they're, they're worshiping everything. G.K. Chesterton said that this, this is a great quote. I'm paraphrasing it, but I, I think I have it. He says, when you cease to worship God, it's not that you worship nothing. It's that you'll worship anything. That, that's again, I, quoting him doesn't mean I agree with everything that he says, but, but that's, that's, a, that's a good quote. That's, that's absolutely correct. It's not that stopping to worship God means you quit worshiping. You, humans can't quit worshiping. It's that you'll worship anything. You'll, you'll worship the stick that you made to give you oracles, is, is what he was saying there. But idols don't provide. They don't provide. Verses 10 and 11 and 18. And, and the sad thing is, again, God would have cared for them in verse 16. Jesus is still echoing this in the Gospels, how I would have gathered you together. Right? I would have gathered you under my wings, but you were not willing. They're stubborn and oh, how we need an understanding of, of what stubbornness really is. Because we, we, look, we all want to excuse our stubbornness like it always has justification. When, when we really, this is what I want. This is what should be. And we, we laugh at it like it's cute. You know, the, 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 the as time goes on in the church, the more stubborn we get, the more consumed we get with hanging on to traditions. When God connects stubbornness to spiritual adultery, I mean, it's not—it's not funny. Stubbornness is not funny. In the Bible, it's—it's—it's a—it's a telltale sign 
that you're cheating on your husband. I mean, the, the, you, I mean do you, you see what the Bible does. I mean, the Bible just leaves you in need of a Savior on every page. So if it doesn't provide one, what hope do we have? Even my stubbornness is adultery. God will shame Israel for this in verse 7, verses 18 and 19. He will judge them for this, verse 9, verse 19. A spirit of whoredom has swept them away like a wind, right, in verse 12 and verse 19. They'll be destroyed. Why? Because they didn't know their covenant husband. They didn't know him. That's These are the reasons why they didn't know him. This is the evidence. This is what was happening. So here's the verdict in 5, 1 through 7. Let me read it to you. Hear this, O priest. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. No part of the nation is exempt. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mitzvah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Wow. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Pardon me, I can't get my page apart here. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. I do think that's speaking of God. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. So chapter 4 began with the lawsuit God was bringing against his people. The focus fell on the priests and their failure to lead the people into the knowledge of God. So when chapter 5 begins, it does so with another call to the priests and to the people, even to the king, to hear the Lord. But now, what he wants them to listen to is the verdict. God brings them to court. God accuses them. God acts as the judge. God announces the verdict. Right? It's, it's all on God. The accusation of whoredom is repeated here. It's intensified. They're so far gone, God will not let this nation return. He has witnessed their sin. He's presented the evidence, and now he takes the stand, and the sentence is passed. God will discipline his people by withdrawing himself from them, so he disciplines them by giving them what they want, separation from him. They think they can manage without acknowledging God. He's going to let them see what that's like. And look at verses 5 and 6. Oh, they seek the Lord. Absolutely, they do it with their continuous sacrifices. They keep up their rituals. They keep performing the ceremonies. They honor the outward things. But it's God who is looking on. Does he not, would God not be able to tell that they're attempting to manipulate him like, we're gonna, we're gonna do these other things and join with these other gods, but if we keep doing the rituals, he won't know. That's literally what, and of course we can get to a place like that. Of course we can convince ourselves. That you can just pull the wool over God's eyes. It's, it's just, it's just, we are just desperately sick. Do we honestly think God doesn't see right through our carnal attachment to traditions in our own church and our own lives because we happen to be doing them 
for the church, when really they're just a way of us making sure we get what we want. Do we think God doesn't see that or know that? God withdrew from Israel. He took his saving hand away. So again, we're faced with the reality of our own tendency towards the rejection of God. Right? That, that's kind of what's scary when you read the prophets and you start trying to make sense of what they're saying. And again, Hosea forces us to reckon with the depth of our own sin, but he does it against the backdrop of the depth of God's grace. It's there. We will forget the terms of our covenant, beloved. We'll forget it. What God did for Israel in the Exodus was indescribably gracious. So I, I, if you wanted to get technical, I don't believe the terms of the old covenant itself were necessarily gracious. Do this and you'll live. Don't do this and you'll die. But the fact that God came and established a covenant with His people at all and promised to be their God if they would obey Him was extremely gracious of Him to do. God is infinitely gracious and they still couldn't keep their end of the bargain. Now, in essence, that hasn't changed. That applies to us because neither can we. The marriage isn't stable. Because now you and I functionally, daily, minute by minute, moment by moment, situation by situation, circumstance by circumstance, do what is right and keep the covenant. Humanity doesn't advance in its ability to stop being rebels and adulterers. We get better at it. Right? It, it's, we feel so distant from this world because we don't worship walking sticks. Imagine it being reversed and people trying to read that like there were people that would worship video games. Like, yeah, I mean, that's, I know that doesn't probably affect too many people in here. I doubt this crowd is a big video game crowd, but you, it, it's, we do the same. That's not an insult, by the way. Don't be insulted that I don't think you're a video game crowd. All right. That's, that's a good thing. <laughs> but, but if, if, if I would, who in here, honestly, don't answer out loud, believes they can love God with the depth that he deserves to be loved? Because that's what Hosea keeps pressing, is that God is worthy of a certain kind of love. And so if God's intention, again, is to have a faithful, steadfastly loving, always acknowledging bride, what is our hope? That question is why we cannot forget the terms of our covenant. They are all terms of grace. Remember 2, 16 to 23, how will God have the bride of which he is worthy? How will God have a bride who is faithful? He will betroth her to himself in faithfulness. You see that God will do it. God will give the bride what he requires for the bride to remain the bride. So God will have to reverse for one unilaterally in his own power for salvation to ever work. And that's what he's done in the new covenant. The terms of our covenant are built on that grace. We, we saw the logic of grace. Now we understand where our covenant came from in the heart of God. That's what we cannot forget. What God is after is a bride who will stay with him. So she has to be a bride that knows him. And that's precisely what Jesus accomplishes. Our ability by grace through faith to know God.
God intends to be known personally by those he saves, so he sends Jesus to be their Savior. We cannot forget the basis of our relationship with God. Beloved, we cannot forget Jesus. And Jesus is just as likely to be forgotten in a church, any church, enamored with its own traditions and ceremonies and rituals and its own ideas of what is pleasing to God, as it is that he would be forgotten in a church where they're bent on ordaining homosexualist pastors. Those are two sides of the same coin, just expressed differently. Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not good enough. The word is not good enough. It's, it's forgetting the terms doesn't always look like Baal fertility cults. Sometimes it looks like you're still going through all the motions, but you have no thought or affection for the God who gave you grace. Israel's problem was not that she forgot the rituals or the ceremonies or the traditions. The Bible couldn't be more clear about this, about, about this kind of thing. Don't long for the older days. Like that, that's a command. Don't yearn for them and, oh man, I wish it was like it was before and, oh, so long ago it was so great. The Bible says, why would you do that? Heaven is out there and it's that way, not that way. So what, what is, what, like, what are we clinging to? Israel's problem was that in her heart she was disconnected from the saving grace of her God. That is what led her to be a prostitute to other nations. And that is what it will do to us if we forget. It will have the same effect. And we won't even know it because everything will look the same. That's what's dangerous about never changing. Right? If everything looks the same, we tend to think everything's good. So, can you please pray for me as your pastor that I will not forget God, that I will not forget the Gospel, that I will not get my eyes on other things. Please pray for me. I need that more than I can tell you. Right? And, and we can't rest on our heritage. I, I, I can't rest on business as usual, right? It, it's, it's, it is a dangerous thing. Keeping the lights on and the pews filled and the programs running does not equal automatically the knowledge of God in the church. Right? That's only found in Christ. And it is terrifying how a church can become so enamored with itself and its traditions that it stops caring what even God thinks of it. And just thinks that one day it's going to say to God, here, look what we made for you. And he said, you forgot love and mercy. And, and so it's, it's, so if Christ isn't front and center on purpose, on purpose, proclaimed explicitly, not assumed, we won't remember him. So, Please, under, I'm, I'm not your priest, but there is a correlation to be seen here. If like people, like priests, then it's possible in some way that church members and pastors can collude in a lack of knowledge about God. Right? It, it, it can happen. Pastors um, or, or people don't generally want to be challenged to trust in Christ alone. And pastors generally don't want the unpopularity and difficulty that comes from unashamedly holding that line. Right, so, so I'm, I'm praying for you. I, I need you to pray for me. Right, we, we both need to contribute to a church culture that allows the gospel to have the priority all the time. 
Like, like at any given moment, we should be able to say, yes, but what does the gospel look like in this situation? How does it affect this? Right? That, that should always be the question that ends all the, all the bickering. Like, I, I know this and I know that and I understand this point and I understand that, but where does the cross of Christ come in here? Right? Just let, let that drive everything that we do. Right? And that, that, I, like, let's say that doesn't happen. I'm not going anywhere. Like, that's not what I mean. Just, I, I'm not going to stop pushing for it. I don't want you to stop pushing for it. And God will not take His saving hand away from us, beloved. That's the thing. Right? You, you, you don't forget the terms. Just, just, so let's say we struggle for the next 50 years together to, to bring the gospel front and center. All right. Okay. Okay. Better than not caring, right? Right. We just need to remember that we need to keep pressing grace. We need to keep pressing the terms of this unilateral, gracious covenant that we stand in where all that's required to come into it is to believe that God is taking care of the whole bill. Right? Remember that God has set it up this way because He wants to know you and He wants you to know Him. That's why there's grace. You see, God won't be known through another system of approaching Him. And He knows that. And we won't stay if it isn't built on a relationship. Rest in the fact that your Savior is like this, that your God is like this. Linda's going to come. If you want to stand and turn in your hymnals to page 297, I'll be down front if anyone needs to come and to pray. Just the point, I think, of Hosea's text is that Israel did not remember the terms of the covenant. Therefore, she forgot God. And, beloved, the key to us not forgetting Him and not being destroyed by a lack of knowledge is knowing Him through the terms of our covenant, which is pure grace. Let me pray, and then we'll play and we'll sing this song. Father, I thank You for this evening. I thank You for the light of Your Word that is shining. Your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray that He would open our eyes and our hearts to see the truth of this book that testifies to Him. Lord, I thank You for this church. It's a whole different thing to pray and to be a part of a church where there aren't this mountain of problems we just don't want there to be. And so, Father, on one sense, in one sense, I'm so thankful that we are who we are. But, Father, the enemy will not go to sleep. He will not stop. And so we have to build a dam here, Father, so that he can't destroy us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with us and watch over us in every way and watch over your people. I ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.